Hello, and welcome to the Gospel Boldly podcast, where we confess with St. John that these things are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. We're your hosts. I'm Thomas Lemke. And I am Pastor Eric Brown. And uh, we're, we're back in the groove after several weeks of just bizarreness. I went on vacation. We were going to record on vacation, and I get to the hotel. It's a nice hotel. Their internet is terrible. So that falls through, and then, then yes. there's sicknesses back and forth. Okay, we'll record while I'm at Pastor's Convention. Another hotel with bad internet. Oh, of course, also, that was also the day that my eye blew up. So I, I had a terrible stive, more than you. We've been sick back and forth. So finally, we're we're both well and available and have decent internet, which may just mean that we will have a massive internet problem day at some point, but but <laughs> I am, uh, we, we will see what will happen. So how are you doing today, Mr. Lumpke? Good. I haven't been up this early in some time, I feel like. <laughs> uh, so that's that's new and different and, and fun again. <laughs> oh, the, I, I've been up early. We've uh, had a, my, my children are mourning people with a vengeance, which doesn't bother me other than the fact that normally I get to wake up good and early before everyone else does and have a mm-hmm. little time to ponder life in the universe to myself, and eh, that's not here. So Now, if I recall, mm-hmm. if, if memory serves me correctly, we are in the middle and actually probably towards the end of the Passion. I believe we finished talking about uh, it is finished. Jesus bowed his head, gave up his spirit. Correct. And now we're going to move on in John 19, verse 31. Anything random that you want to bring up before we get into John, or or should we just dive on in? All the random thoughts I think I will be having pertain to John, so I'd say let's jump. All right. So, starting at verse 31, as you mentioned, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. All right. Now, this is one of the places that causes no end of consternation to biblical scholars. Because, oh, John has a radically different chronology because in in the Synoptic Gospels, the, the Passover was celebrated that that night, that that Friday, so because I mean Monday, Thursday night, that's the sundown. That's when the, so the day of preparation would have been what we would have called Thursday morning. And why does John call this the day of preparation? Oh, they don't even agree with when the Passover is. Here's the problem: um, Is John necessarily speaking with reference to? The celebration of the Jewish celebration of Passover, which he doesn't really mention at all in the text. Or might he be talking to the fact that when Christ is in the tomb, because of this, <laughs> you, you have the, the the full Passover of man, the, the, the Passover realized. I mean, I can see it either way. Yeah, there's, there's certainly a case to be made there. And this, this stands out even more. If, if, we, we, if we take John being the last of the Gospels... Um, what very quickly early on in the early church, what did they call Easter? I mean, e- Easter is an English word. What, what was the, the, the Greek word for, for Easter or, uh, that's still the Latin word. The, Pascha. The Pascha, the Passover. 
So if if you are in the liturgical context where Easter is the Passover, what would Holy Saturday be? The day of preparation. So basically, John is is using new text. We're 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 coming at this not from a a let's look at the flow up to this to the the crucifixion, but we're looking at the crucifixion from a, a distinctly New Testament perspective, mm-hmm. and. And also you do have the point that, look, it was the Jewish Sabbath coming up and it was the Sabbath right by the Passover. You don't want to have a bunch of dead bodies hanging up. That would really just kind of annoy the the Jewish folks, especially as they're already on the verge of a riot. Mm -hmm. So, hey, we got our guy dead. Let's hurry up and get this done so we don't – so we can all go home and rest. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be nice, Pilot? Let's just all go home and rest. Does that kind of track and flow? Yep. All right. All right, continuing on then. Uh, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. All right. Now, two things with that. Well, actually three. Historically, just speaking, uh, breaking the legs of a person being crucified would speed up the whole process. You'd go quicker Mm because basically you're slowly suffocating to death. And the way you stop that is by pressing up on your feet to keep you up. Well, if you can't press up on your legs because they're broken, you you suffocate quickly. It, 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 It brings it up quick. But when they get to Jesus, they see he's already dead. So we're just going to double check. And they stab him with a spear and out comes blood and water. What is the physical significance of that, Thomas? Well, probable signs that they pierced uh, one of several membranes in the body where blood and water would have been kept somewhat separate, especially in the case of a hypovolemic shock or a uh, cardiac event type of situation. So uh, pleural cavity in the case of the lungs possibly, or maybe the pericardium around the heart would have contained the water. And of course, blood's going to be there in the human body regardless where you puncture so. Right. And so basically if they see water and blood coming out instead of just everything all mixed together with blood from the force of heart pumping that would mix everything up. Yep. It shows that, yeah, this is not the normal spurting of someone who is alive that I've gone stabity stabity to. <laughs> right. So so literally that that just shows that he is actually dead. Right. But yet But yet there is also another significance. If I say blood and water, especially thinking in terms of the New Testament worshiping church, is there something else that you think of? Keeping in mind that Jesus has just given up his spirit by which we uh, receive grace and forgiveness and mercy. So you're telling me water and blood came out of his body. When you factor all those in together, those three elements, I would say the, the, uh, the sacraments seem to play a part here. This is highly baptismal. In fact, this uh, you you get the water of baptism, you get the blood of the supper, and this is one of the things that John in his epistle will emphasize. You have three witnesses, which is a big John theme. You have the spirit, you have the water, and you have the blood. All three of these testify together. That mm-hmm. that's First John. I think it's I think it's five, but it might be First John four. Sounds right. It's early. So I mean, you get this strong emphasis on look, Christ has died, and in his death. 
he gives up from him, literally pours out his spirit from him, pours the waters of baptism from him, pours the blood of the supper, which is given to us and brought to us today. We receive today in his church, everything that happened there at the crucifixion, all that he has done for us upon the cross is brought to us now. In fact, this is so important that you have in the next verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. Now, th- this this does play a play off of one of the things that is different about the first millennium of the church t- from today. Today, we tend to be more skeptical of the resurrection because we don't like anything miraculous. We're all modern-y, scientific type of folks. In the ancient world, the idea of there being a resurrection was, well, I mean, some people doubt it, but it was, well, dude, if he's God, he can do what he wants, right? The thing that was more scandalous and shocking is the idea of a God willingly dying. I I mean, that that was what was the the bigger thing. In fact, you have a a lot of the the heresies of the early church. You have the people who are the docetists, which come from the word dokeo, which means I seem, who basically claim that Jesus didn't really have a body and didn't really die because God wouldn't go through that. That would just be terrible. He only seemed to have a body. It's all just a giant. The the idea of, of... God dying was utterly scandalous. I mean, this is Paul in 1 Corinthians. It's it's uh, a scandal to the Jews and foolishness to the Greek. It, it, this was the mind-boggling thing, which is why you get this, this extra, yeah, I was there. I saw him die. I, this is my testimony. You get that here, not, a, not at the resurrection account. It, it's no, no, he really was dead. I saw him dead. So that ends up being the... Uh, it's not the point of emphasis that we would think you'd have being a uh, being twenty first century folk, right? But that makes sense. But but first century folk, that would be the point of emphasis that you would want to make. So, any right. other thoughts there? No. So thirty six then. Mm-hmm. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says. They will look on him whom they have pierced. Hey, Thomas, how many scripture citations did John just give there? I mean, I count two. Is that a trick question? <laughs> no, no, that's what he did. Okay. Two. And he had just given his testimony. So what do you have now? You have two or three witnesses that, uh, yes, this is what happened. So do you see how you get that 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 good Johanna and completeness? So yep. now it, it should be. Dare I say it is finished. <laughs> the, 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 the tale of the crucifixion of, of the Christ has come to an end and it should be utterly believable and understandable. Because again, we, we, we knew that he was not going to have his bones broken and we knew that, that they, the world, the, will look upon the one who was pierced for them. So, so we have the whole wrapping up. So just quick question, we'll pause before we get to the burial, and we can do that after the break and after the backwards life. But any just thoughts about the the passion of our Lord that have come out in the in the past two months or in the, the past <laughs> two episodes? Well, let's see here. I, I suppose 
you know, those standing by watching would not have included, and I probably will see this in some respect coming up, would not have included the majority of the disciples. That's always been something that right. struck but me. Most of the disciples apparently head for the hills, which is sensible. I mean, the, the one you see still hanging around throughout this is John, and right. John's the one with connection. John's the John's people that know people, so he he's the one who'd be willing to risk it. Peter flee for his life, even right. after he comes up. Matthew, okay, let's have the tax collector disciple running around when there's dangers of an angry revolt. Yeah, who might they go for? <laughs> they they the angry mob could take him out anyway, regardless of Jesus. So so basically. You, you just have John there. And and so you have this unique thing where John really points out, by the way, I, I was an eyewitness, not just of the resurrection. I was the eyewitness of the crucifixion. Right. So so that's just really kind of a, a, a strong emphasis that John makes. Cool. All right. Thanks for the clarification. Well, with that, that brings us up to our first break. So I suppose we'll see you on the other side for the Backwards Life. Woo-hoo. All right. And welcome back to the uh, Gospel Bowley Podcast. Now, now I'm going to tell a joke um, okay. because Thomas couldn't count us down. Right, he went from <laughs> five to three. Mm-hmm. So, so a, a, a shop teacher back in high school said, "I need five men. You, you, and you. One, four, and five. Well, what happened to two and three? Well, two was a hacksaw back in '80, and three was a chainsaw back in '84. <laughs> Brum dum sh." No, go. Thomas has all his fingers. I found that to be funny. I don't know. We are to the part of the show that we call the backwards life, <laughs> where where we will take a, a, a Christian phrase, a Christian question that normally gets approached from one angle, and we're going to kind of look at the uh, the opposite end of it, come at it from a different angle, and see what we can ponder. So, Thomas, do you have a, a question, a topic, an idea for us today? Yeah, as a matter of fact. So, you know, recently, and I know we talked politics a little bit, uh, two episodes ago, but it seems good to me because of a, a recent stir in per, as it pertains to one, maybe you could say both, of the candidates to talk about the idea of adultery, talk about that particular commandment and delve into maybe uh, you can give us a what is the proper view on how it's defined and a backwards life approach to how one practices the uh, not engaging in same Okay, now, now, now I, I will bring this up because uh, actually uh, we were looking at uh, catechetical reviews in the circuit, and, and one of the pastors in my circuit is kind of uh, strongly adamant that we don't get what is meant by the Sixth Commandment. What is the Sixth Commandment, Thomas? Thou shalt not commit adultery. All right. And we think of adultery primarily as sex outside of wedlock. Mm-hmm. And the the thing that he emphasizes is that, that that's actually not the fullness of it. To to commit adultery, it's not that it was fornication, okay. but rather that you were taking this this establishment that 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 God had established that your parents were arranging, and that you were acting contrary to it. You were corrupting the bargain, which is why you have adultery uh, tied in so often with uh, adultery and God's covenant. It's a, a corruption of the covenant that's being established. Mm-hmm. So he's very big on the idea of of uh, of well, it's really a corruption. Um, which is also what, what the word adulterate means in the rest of the world. If I give you adulterated brownies, it doesn't mean that they have 
uh, done other things with brownies that they should not have done, but it means there's some type of corruption in them. Strange or substance you, being inserted. Right, right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it, so, so the the broader. It, so, what I will say is, really, if you think about this from the the creed, mm-hmm. or, or, oh, let me go grab my catechism so I get the right 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 translation in the uh, the. Okay, I should ask Thomas while I'm looking. What does the sixth commandment mean? We should fear and love God so that. We lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do, and husband and wife love and honor each other. Uh, I remember it as being chaste and decent rather than Mm -hmm. sexually pure, and I actually think chaste is a better translation because the idea is to to work on not – Getting into corruption. Uh, This is also where you have in one of the epistles, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which I think kind of ends up being (laughs) appropriate to this. So the idea is not just a a matter of don't do that and you're good, but rather remember that there is a a holiness, a sacredness to the idea of, of what God has joined together. And so it's not just a matter of, of, controlling your base emotions but but learning to see more of of what is the gift that god has given you what are gifts that god has not given to you uh you you know there are plenty of good-looking women in the world whom god has not given to me to be my wife Mm -hmm. and you know what that's actually good why can i say that is good Every time we see a guy in scripture with multiple beautiful wives, how does that go? <laughs> it's boring, <Poorly>. exhausting, exhausting. <laughs> yeah. Solomon, with all his wisdom, might have made many great political alliances with his multiple marriages. So, so, <laughs> so the 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 point I would say is instead of uh, looking at this mainly in terms of of sexual morality or what I'm not going to do. How do we look at and cherish the family, cherish the idea of, of husband and wife? And, and this is one thing that comes up even when, when you're single, you're still part of a family. How do you approach that family? Do you, do you try to strengthen it or do you try to undermine it? Do you, do you, do you make it work better and more full of love or do you corrupt it? And that's that idea. And, and so what happens is, well, I don't know. I, I guess I'm kind of rambling now just a little bit. But does that kind of make sense, that, that different mm-hmm. angle? Yeah, I would say. I, because the if, whether or not a person is a good or a bad person, but, but you're messing with people. So don't go and mess with people. Don't bring about their corruption. Don't make them feel abused, violated. Don't, don't bring them in on your own problems and your own sin. And that's what so happened. I mean, especially with, with a lot of, when we think of what we join and think of, of, of adultery and fornication, you end up getting other people into your trouble with you. You, you, you spread the corruption as it were. Avoid that. I feel like Proverbs has a lot to say along those lines too, just in terms of, you know, avoiding the, the adulterous woman, um, I, the same could be said both ways, but well, and that, that's one other thing that 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 I, I would like to point out. Sometimes we have this idea of of wonderful, pristine times back in the olden days when 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 things like this didn't happen, and it's some no, 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 no. The, the, Thomas, what is uh, the world's oldest profession? 
<laughs> uh, it's prostitution as far as that's one it's one I mean you see it you see it being problematic in Genesis it's mm-hmm. problematic all the way through in fact you get to the end and and you you have the the description of evil as the great harlot I mean the, that's true the, there, there's been that that idea of of corruption and not wanting to stay where God has placed you throughout the entire it's been a common, common vice, but yet in our day we're called to uh, to to purity as well because you know, hey, the gifts God actually gives us are actually really pretty good, and we don't need to go run after others. True. Does that work? Very much. Well, I don't know if that was backwardsy enough, but it, close enough. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> All right. All right. Note how I'm not actually quoting anything, lest there be like massive furor. Because again, that's one of the other things. Oh, this—it's so terrible what he said, and then everyone repeats. It. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah, we'll we'll leave that purposely vague, and yeah, yeah. everyone yeah. knows what we're talking about anyway. It's not. A- yeah. All right. Cool. Let's go on. Okay then. <clears throat> so then, uh, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Uh, oh, but secretly, I should put the emphasis in that way, secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Now, now let's pause here. So we, we've come across Nicodemus earlier. He was the, the guy who just didn't get it in a... In, in John 3. But he comes along. And, and and when does he do this? It's not by night because he can't, he has to be, he's going to be done before nightfall. So, so he doesn't come by night. He comes to Jesus finally in the daylight, which is just kind of a nice little contrast. That is interesting. And, and then you also have Joseph of Arimathea, also a, another of the Pharisees. So you have two of the Pharisees. And remember, this is the day of preparation for a Sabbath. Um, why, why, why do they want the bodies down? Well, because the Sabbath is coming up, and having dead bodies up is is a, a grave violation of the Sabbath. A yeah, grave. that's a great uh-huh. thought of the day. Uh, um, Thomas, <laughs> nice. Uh, what would happen to you if you were a good, obedient Jew and you touched a dead body right before sundown, before the Sabbath started? What would you be for that Sabbath? Now you'd be unclean. Is there no because I believe it's until nightfall. So wouldn't you be able to like wash and purify yourself or would that carry over when it's an actual dead human corpse? This is one where you'd wash and purify yourself uh-huh. after the sunset. But what would washing and purifying yourself be? Ritual Work on the Sabbath. Oh, yeah. Ooh, yeah, true. So so this is one where, where, where really they're, they're, they're kind of, Blowing their Sabbath. And, and yeah. again, this is one where, where they're doing the hands-on prep of the body. I mean, right. you've got you've got uh, Nicodemus bringing the aloes and the myrrh. And this is one of the things that, that, that comes on up that, that's funny with the start of the next chapter. With, with 20, you see the women going to the tomb when? Early Sunday morning. Right, after the Sabbath. Be, because they can't touch the dead body. Before or during that. So, so I mean, you, you, suddenly these Pharisees who have been secret admirers of Christ go and deal with him boldly and bodily and physically and in a way that that is not quite what 
you don't expect good Pharisees to handle the corpse detail. I'll True. just put it that way. That's for so. sure. All right. So if you want to finish off the chapter. All right. <laughs> so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and uh, with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, because the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. All right, Thomas. Nearby, there was a garden with a tomb in it. Does that play off of any, oh, good Genesis 3 imagery for you? (laughs) In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God, and by him all things were made. And when he made things, what did he do? He made man to live forever and put him in a garden. Yep. And yet in that garden, there was the tree of which they were not to eat, and they ate of it, and death came. And so what do you have? You have Christ captured in the garden, put upon a tree, put to death, and then laid on a laid in a, a tomb in the garden, uh, a tomb in which no one else had ever been laid, a tomb that ends up being just nice and fresh for him. Mm-hmm. Adam deserved to die. Christ, the new Adam, comes. And he is the firstborn of all creation. In some way, he's saying, all right, I, I will be the, 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 the highest death of all, of all of the creation as well. Do you say that kind of, I mean, it's very, it, it really is a very poetic image that, mm-hmm. that brings up. And this is one, what do you mean this is not just poetry? Well, no, no, no. The point is with the details that John is deciding to include, he's wanting to, to make those connections. You're seeing this is the, the fall's result is being made shown here. What does the fall mean? It means he will crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will bruise his heel. And that leads directly to here. And there he is, and they lay him down. And that's where the passion ends. So, I don't know. I always like that the fact that you've got uh, Nicodemus and Joseph getting all of a sudden hands-on. And, and, and during the day, while everyone else is running around getting their final preparations for the Passover or for the, uh, the Sabbath, there they go, just tending to Christ's corpse, which is just really, I think, a, a, a fantastic confession. So. For sure. All right. All right. We'll wrap up with that for this one and uh, be back on the other side of the break with more. All right. Wrap up uh, with 75 pounds of aloe and spices. And we are back for our last segment of the Gospel Bully Podcast. And, and oh, aware listener, as you may have noted, we're really to the point where the next thing we'd go over in John would be John chapter 20, which is the resurrection. And uh, I don't want to just start the resurrection at the very, like, oh, we'll stick the resurrection on it. That, that should be worthy of a new start. So, so mm-hmm. what we're going to f- spend this last segment doing is just kind of wrapping up the first 19 ta- chapters of John with a, a little bow. And and here's my assertion, Thomas, that, that hopes to get the ball rolling. Yes. I will say that that part of the idea of what John is showing up with, especially with the way chapter 19 ends, is that the crucifixion of Jesus and his death wraps up everything in the Old Testament, everything from, from Genesis 3.15, that he will come, he'll bruise, 
all the things of the Old Testament get condensed down into Christ. Every prophecy, every idea, everything comes up and is boiled in him and the book is closed. And then when we get to the next day, you get the whole new creation. There, There's the whole newness coming out there. So I think... Uh, I think there's a, a beautiful completeness in a, a, a book ending. It came out especially with that whole laid in the garden. I think that's just a, 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 a beautiful mental book ending with the Old Testament. Uh, do, we, do we often think of Christ's death really as the, well, I, I guess we think of it as the fulfillment of Scripture, but, but, but do we really think of it in the terms of the fullness? Of, of what it fulfills. It's not just, oh, the Bible said he was going to die, and look, he, he, he died. Yay! <laughs> but God tells Adam the wages that you're going to die. That's what Christ does. He fulfills that. It is finished. Um, you have the Sabbath. God rests on the seventh day. Hey, Friday is the sixth day. What's the seventh day? The day Christ is in the tomb. He mm-hmm. is the, you, you have the great fulfillment of, of the resting of God. And now, now the new can begin with, with the, the eighth day. Oh, go, go to your churches folks and look at the baptismal font. And I will bet you dimes to donuts that they have eight sides. And the reason for that is the idea mm-hmm. of, of the eighth day. <laughs> Cause I'm mean, one, two, three, four, five, six, Palm Sunday would be day one. And you come through and that, that, the resurrection comes with the the newness. And what are we baptized? Into his death and resurrection. So, hey, newness of life. Yay. Woo. So, I don't know. You're, you're looking semi-quizzical. Semi yeah. I actually have a question along those lines. You, you keep mentioning the term fulfillment and how maybe we don't get what is fulfillment, the fullness of it. Is there more sense of fulfillment than just well, he fulfilled prophecies, as in to say, um, well, the Bible said, like you said, that he was going to die. You know, you have, um, for instance, Psalm 22, um, you know, talking about all this. And uh, that's fulfilled. Okay, we can put a check mark next to that. It's, that's one's been wrapped up. Blah, blah, blah. Is there an even deeper sense that the fulfillment goes as opposed to just checking off the messianic prophecies that, that we're going into? Well, there, there are a couple of ways to look at this, and sometimes okay. there is that that more of a the checkmark approach. Um, that that can be called sometimes. Are you ready for the big word rectilinear, where there's that direct wow. line recta back to the Old Testament? We're like, look here, one for one for one, which is okay. which is also very useful. There is that sense, but actually, what I'm thinking of here in, in fulfillment, I'm I'm going to flip over to the Gospel of Luke quickly. Oh, okay, a- and. This comes up in Luke uh, 24 at the end, after he has been raised from the dead, and he's talking to the apostles, and let me pick up my Bible and find it. Uh, Starting at verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their mind uh, to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So so what you get from there is that it's not just this one for but but the entirety, every the whole point of of Joseph being sold into slavery into Egypt is to be 
divine foreshadowing pointing to to uh, the the favored son Christ who goes down into the the pits of of slavery and and our, our wretchedness and yet comes out and and provides life and salvation in the midst of of starvation and death. I, the idea that that every point you have in the Old Testament, if if you if you throw the ball off of it, it'll bounce towards Christ. If, if that makes sense, I like that. Yeah, very much. And, and so it's not just well, there's nothing about X thing that's directly talking about Jesus. Well, okay, maybe you might not find that directly, but but you can bounce to it. You can get to it. That everything really is driving, or or you can almost think of the entirety of the Old Testament as like a a spearhead that is funneling and narrowing down to to, to Christ. Mm-hmm. And really, this is what what John does so well with the gospel because he starts at the beginning and and he he brings in the garden he brings up all this stuff out this is how the old testament works you need two or three witnesses and it's all coming together and and just all wrapped up in christ uh one of the the luther quotes i like and i'm paraphrasing is that that christ drips off of every page in the old testament Mm -hmm. and and it's in terms of this is what he's fulfilling. He is accomplishing. You look at the Levitical law, that's all setting up and preparing for Christ. It's not the point of, oh, I will do all these things and look how great I am. Well, no, no, no. The point is look at Christ who does all these things and see how great he is. Um, Jonah, it's not just a story of a preacher who didn't want to preach and ran away. It's also, no, three days in the tomb. There was a Christological point. I mean, again, the and that God is desiring mercy and salvation over and above what sometimes the good Christian people want. All about Christ and his mercy and his, his act of redemption and salvation. And that's really the point. And so often uh, we can use the scriptures to do a lot of things. Um, anytime you have this many words, you can pull them out of context and use them to, to do a whole variety of things. And, and sometimes that is highly useful. The scriptures do speak quite a bit to, to what is morality, what is right and wrong. And, and that can be, but, but the overarching point that always remains is look to Christ. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. I mean, that that's the ultimate point. And John does such a, a, a I think, a wondrous job of, of driving everything always to Christ. Okay. Now, you, you made a couple connections there. I want to ask you about another one as it pertains to the Sabbath, which, again, you brought up. You have Jesus saying in one of the Gospels somewhere, I forget which, <laughs> maybe multiple ones, that uh, the Sabbath was made for man, or sorry, man was not Darn it. I'm getting it all all backwards. Sabbath uh, was uh, made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Because, I mean, that became you. one of the big things. Oh, you. is he violating the Sabbath? And, and, and this is one of the things where, where Jesus is asserting, asserting that the Sabbath is meant to be a gift. Now, let me just speak in general. Okay. Uh, you have the idea of a day of rest. One of the things that is important is get some rest. Uh, Thomas, if you don't get any rest, uh, how does your service to your neighbor go? Uh, slowly <laughs> with little, little patience or joy. It, it, it doesn't work. So the idea is God designed the way things to work to, to build in for us the idea that we should have some rest where we can stop our work. And then conversely, uh, remember the Sabbath day by keeping the holy. What does it mean? We should fear and love God that we do not despise preaching his word, but hold it sacred and gladly 
here and learn. learn So the idea that instead of our work, we can have that time to focus on receiving from God his good gifts, both his physical gifts and his spiritual gifts. So, So you have that idea. When we say that God rested, it didn't mean that suddenly God went all hands off, because if God suddenly went just utterly hands off of of his creation, what would happen? We'd be gone. Yeah, Adams would spin into nothingness. (laughs) So so what you have in this, this, and God rested from his labors, it's didactic, it's teaching. It is is reminding us who he is and who we are and what he does for us. Therefore, don't try to outwork God. If God says, all right, now it's time to, to stop and pause from doing new stuff, you can rest and pause too. So don't be a workaholic. Mm-hmm. But but there is a greater spiritual thing that it does point forward to Christ's rest in the tomb. That that on that day, Jesus is not running around and working. He is literally resting. He became man, and as men need rest, well, he rests. And also as men in the fallen world suffer and die, so too he suffered and died for us and for our sake. And then there is newness after that. So so you get this, this everything is pointing to, there's that practical aspect that comes up of it, but there's this, this theological aspect about our own refreshment. But even then, it's not just abstract, oh, I should be refreshed. But it, but it it still points to Christ. There's always that 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 drive to Christ and what He does for you there, present. Does that kind of okay. work or give more follow ups? <laughs> oh well, I, I don't have one along those lines because I think oh, okay. you covered it fairly right. completely. What I would ask, though, and and we might finish up with this depending on on where you go, but um, there is the aspect of the. Um, the Apostles' Creed, where it references the descent into hell, mm-hmm. which ostensibly does happen after the crucifixion is is complete, right? Would you speak to that real quick to kind of bring us home? There is debate as to when that actually happens. And I am inclined to say, actually, that's the first thing he does rising from the dead. Ah, okay. Um, Calvin argued that, oh, Jesus went into hell and suffered hell even. No, mm. I, 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 I don't take it to be that way. Uh, you do get the uh, line from I think First Peter where where he lead he goes into captivity and leads ca- leads captivity captive. Right. I take the descent into hell to be a sign of Christ's victory, or if you remember from your catechism days, not part of his humiliation, but part of his exaltation. Mm-hmm. Um, Excellent, Thomas. If we are at war, il- if Illinois and Oklahoma declare war on each other. <laughs> And, going uh, through Kansas, and, or <laughs> yeah, and and my my Illinois armies, my Illinois legions descend into Oklahoma City and march around there at will. What does that mean? Uh, that means lots of fire and pillaging and, and victory for your side. It, presumably, it, it means we won. So yes. so so I I really take that more to be a sign of his, his victory. I mean, think, if if you are parading around Satan's domain especially risen from the dead, that, that, that is the ultimate in your face. That is the tearing down of the goalposts at, at the neighbors <laughs> at the, at, at, when you're the visitors. Yeah. It, it, it is the, the, the defiling of your own domain. Mm-hmm. So, so it is really, it's Christ showing his victory, even in the heart of Satan's stronghold. So, 
So yeah, actually, actually, properly speaking, I'd say that would be a next week time of thing type of thing. But I, I'm not going to yell at you too much because <laughs> it's one of those things where it is one of those. Okay, uh, the Nicene uh, Creed does not have that line. Uh, the reason for that is there was a debate in Rome at some point in the early church, and that's from where we get the uh, the development of the Apostles' Creed about. Did he descend into hell? And well, yeah. So they put that line in uh, when they were getting together and crafting the Nicene Creed. That wasn't a point of controversy, so they didn't add it. They didn't. Yeah, they didn't have that line space. in. The creeds are all written to discuss controversy. This is one of the things that's neat. If you look at a creed, and every line that they confess is because someone didn't and messed it up. So yeah, mm-hmm. it gives you a sense of, of just how wild and woolly the early church was. So. Definitely. But maybe we can get to some more wild and whirly, woolly stuff the next time on the uh, Gospel Bowly Cup podcast. Anything Sounds else good. as we head on out? That's it for me. Hey, the Lord be with you all. Have a great day. Enjoy your forgiveness that Christ has won for you with his death and resurrection. Be well. Be well.